before we begin. Lord, we stand here looking at your holy word and asking that to be a microscope onto our hearts, that you would examine our hearts, you examine our minds, or you would examine our motives, and cause us to trust in you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there's a very complicated highway intersection in the country of England in a specific city called Birmingham, and the title of the, this intersection is called Spaghetti Junction. Isn't that a great word? Spaghetti Junction. I, I looked at it and uh, tried to just, you know, count how many roads sort of come together at this junction. Best I could count was around 25. And you think Monkey Junction is, you know, complicated. What about Spaghetti Junction? And, and, and lots of countries have their own Spaghetti Junctions. Uh, in Japan, there's another famous one. They call it Tentacle Junction. Either way, uh, if you look at the, uh, the aerial view of uh, this junction in Birmingham, and you look down, it looks, this junction looks like a plate of spaghetti. Lots of things coming together, but all kinds of uh, noodles running out, all kinds of tentacles running out off of, the, off of this plate, as you might say. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the life of Jesus could be referred to as spaghetti junction or Tentacle Junction. It's the place where all the highways of history meet together. And you don't, you, you don't always see them, or they look complicated at some point. And uh, I want to just point out a few of these junctions as we go through uh, some Old Testament, and then also make some connections within the birth of Christ and also the death and res resurrection of Christ. First of all, let me just breeze through some of these Old Testament highways that most of us are pretty familiar with and how they connect with Jesus. First is Genesis 3.15. Uh, after the fall of Adam and Eve, God comes and he's placing a curse on the serpent. And he says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the seed of the woman. So hostility is going to come between you, the serpent, you, Satan, you, the deceiver, and the seed of the woman, specifically the the offspring, the child of the woman. And he, this offspring, is going to have the ability to crush you. But in the crushing, you're going to bruise his heel. It won't be a fatal wound, but it'll be painful nonetheless. And in sort of scholarly realms, they, they call this the proto-evangel. It's a fancy word that means first good news. So if you're looking for the gospel... In the Bible, the very first arrival of the gospel, maybe you might say the, the first ray over the horizon. It's not the whole sun, because that's going to come when Jesus comes, but the, the first ray that cracks this blackness of the fall is Genesis 3.15, where God is saying a woman is going to give birth to a very unique child. The child is particularly connected to her and not to her husband. And he's going to have this power to defeat what has happened here in the garden, but in that defeat, he is going to be bruised himself. Moses, Moses is the great leader who uh, were, had a face-to-face -face conversation with God, and whenever he went up on the mountain and came back down, you remember he had to wear this veil because he's just radiating out the glory of God. 
And Moses is the one who brought the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land. Deuteronomy 18.15 says this, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Listen to him. Deuteronomy 18, Moses is passing off the scene and he's saying, hey, there's going to be another prophet It's going to be like me. So when you see him, you're going to say there's a lot of similarities. You might say in, in God's history, it doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And when you see this person who has this face-to-face kind of conversation with God, the person who's going to lead a great exodus, then you're going to, you're going to know it's that's that person. 1 Samuel 16 Chapter 2, the people's choice for king. Remember him, Saul. We want a king. So God says, well, I'm going to provide a king that's like you. You want a king so bad, you get one like, like yourself. And it didn't turn out well. And so that, now in, Gen- in 1 Samuel 16, God's going to choose for himself a king. And he says this to Samuel. Go down to Jesse's house at Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Hear that noise? It's like a sheet music is playing all the way through the Old and the New Testament, and you're going to hear this music again. Go down to Bethlehem, for in Bethlehem I have provided for myself a king. A king. You see, you're on this highway in Genesis 3. You're on this highway in Deuteronomy 18. You're on this highway in 1 Samuel 16. All these highways are going to end up at Spaghetti Junction. They're all going to end up in, on Jesus. So when you turn to the New Testament and you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 26, let's just see this together. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Not surprisingly, he's from the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have been found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your virgin womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. So here you you see this conjunction. Here's the woman and the child mentioned in Genesis chapter 3. This unique child born of a woman, so fully human, but yet born from God, the Holy Spirit, so fully divine, capable of crushing the head of the serpent, capable of standing in our place. And the first light, the first ray of the gospel in Genesis 3 is beginning to, to come above the surface now. We're beginning to see who this person, this child, is going to be. And then if you were to read on in, in Luke chapter uh, two, chapter 1, verse 32, it's, you see that he is going to be taking the throne of his father, David. And in chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house in the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, whom was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, 
and laid them in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. If you're reading the Bible straight through like you might a novel, you come to this information, you go, there it is, there it is. I've been waiting for it. I've been reading the story, waiting for this person to come. And God is going to choose the true king from Bethlehem. God is going to choose this person that comes from the line of David. And so all these highways are leading to Jesus. Luke chapter 9, one more connection here from what I've just said. Verse 28, this is called the transfiguration. Now about eight days after saying these things, Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up on a mountain, very important phrase, to pray. And he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. You hear that? This is Deuteronomy 18. This is the person that's like Moses. This is the person who's, who when he's face to face with God, he has a, a dazzling glory. And when he comes, he's going to lead an exodus. And in that passage, Moses and Elijah or Jesus and Jesus are talking about it. It says in the, in the Greek, in the, in the English, departure, but in the Greek, that word is exodus. Think about how pregnant this moment is. Jesus is talking to Moses and he's saying, let's talk about your exodus. It's not just his exit from the stage, it's his exodus. He's the first, he's going to be the firstborn that's going to bring many people to glory through his exodus. So here we have the prophet who is like Moses. There's hundreds of other highways in the Old Testament that will get us to Jesus. And I, I want you to see it and be fascinated one, so that you could read your Bible in 2021. I don't know, I'm not looking at anyone particular here. But let's just say, let's just pretend that somebody here has sort of fallen off the wagon of Bible reading. And you're already saying, hey, in 2021, I'm going to start January 1 with the new Bible reading program. Read through the Bible in a year, whatever your program is. I couldn't encourage you more to read your Bible and to begin to see how these highways all intersect with the spaghetti junction of Jesus. But I don't want you to just see it as fascinating. I want you to see it as solidifying your faith. This thing that we believe in, this person we believe in. It's not, it's not a myth. This is hundreds and thousands of years of God bringing a story that we can say, yes, this is the thing that we've been looking for the whole time. This is, by the way, how Jesus convinced, convinced some skeptical disciples about his identity. Remember this passage? He, he's already dead, and he's resurrected, but a couple of disciples have kind of leaked out and gone to another city called Emmaus. And they're on this road, and Jesus comes up miraculously walking beside them, but he does, they don't know it's Jesus. And in order to convince these two disciples of who Jesus was, what did Jesus do? I would have done something amazing. I would have jumped up in the air and said, it's me, I'm, you know, light coming off of me. I would have done something like that. But that's not what Jesus does. He goes back, it says, to the law and the prophets, and he explains to these two guys everything that's been said. 
And they go, that's right. We, we saw it, but we didn't see Spaghetti Junction. We didn't see how everything in the Old Testament has been leading to you. And when they saw it, their eyes were open and they realized they had been with, with Jesus. So all that is a very long introduction to the real point that I want to make, and that is the connections between Jesus' birth and Jesus' resurrection. This spaghetti junction isn't just pulling highways out from behind, it's also extending out into the future. And I want to make a few connections between the, the birth narratives and what I'm going to call the rebirth narratives of the resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ. There, now, again, there's hundreds of these. Let me just mention a few. The wise men, Matthew chapter 2. Let's turn there, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The wise men came looking for Jesus. First place they stopped was the ruler's house, a guy named Herod, and said, hey, you're the, you're the ruler around here. Surely you've heard about this king. Where is the king who has been born king of the Jews? I don't know if any of you all sang that in one of the Christmas plays. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, they're asking. Somehow they had gotten the message that the king of kings, the true king, was going to be born from the Jewish people. And some scholars think that probably came from Daniel, but that's a rabbit trail that I can't chase down right now. But however they found out, they're coming looking for the king of kings. They're coming to worship him, you notice that. And as you read on in Matthew chapter 2, you find out that Herod, Herod he's not interested in worshiping the king of kings. Herod's ruling his own, his own life just fine. He's not interested in somebody coming and being over him, of putting boundaries on him, putting some sort of restrictions. So Herod decides he's going to kill all the male children two years and younger in Bethlehem. Again, a, a connection to Moses' birth. And again, a rabbit trail that I don't have time to chase down right now. But Herod... Herod, he's not interested in following another king. He's not interested in worship. In Matthew chapter 27, now we're having the bookends, Matthew 1 and 2 to Matthew 27, there's another Herod-like person. His name is Pilate. Chapter 27, verse 11, he asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You see, you're supposed to, as the reader, you're supposed to make this connection. Wise men are coming and asking, where is the king of the Jews? And here at the very end of the book, it's, is this really the king of the Jews? Pilate's asking him. And when Pilate refuses to worship Jesus like Herod refused to worship Jesus, he tries to put him to death, and indeed he does on a cross. See, making these connections is Matthew's way of preparing the reader to ask themselves this question, do I think Jesus is king of the Jews? You remember when, when Jesus died, above him was a plaque? What does it say? King of the Jews. It's, it's a way of walking by and saying, there is a king of kings. Do you think this is the king? 
So in the story, you're supposed to be reading the story and say, am I Herod? Am I Pilate? Or am I wise man? Which, which one do you believe? Are you the wise man who says, I'm taking all of my treasures and I'm laying them down at your feet? Or are you Herod and saying, no, I don't want any other ruler. I, want, I don't want anybody giving any kind of boundary. I don't want anybody on top of me in any other way. I love this quote from Rod Dreher, a political commentator, commentator now, on his testimony about following Jesus. He says this, Eventually I reached a point of despair and wanted God more than I wanted my own autonomy. That was when my faith became real. See, at some point, this man who had sort of attached himself to Jesus really still wanted self-rule. He wanted autonomy. He wanted, to, he wanted Jesus to affirm all the things that he wanted to do. And at some point he, got, he said, I'm in such despair, that's, not, that's going down the wrong road, that I finally gave away my autonomy, this great treasure that Rod Dreher had, and said, I'm willing to lay it down, and I'm asking you to really be the king of kings in my own life. And my question for us as we look at the wise men, as we look at Herod, which, which one are you? Do you believe that Jesus is the king of kings? Second thing we see in the birth and the death and resurrection narratives is the prominence of women. It's not just the, at the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus, but, but throughout all critical moments of the Bible, you see the prominence of women, and I wonder if you've noticed it. Exodus, I mean Genesis chapter 3, 15, it's a, it's a woman who's going to play a critical role in delivering the Savior. In Exodus chapter 1 and 2, this is when Pharaoh was trying to put to death uh, all the babies, the male babies that were born to the Hebrew women. And it's the midwives who refuse to put the babies to death. It's Moses' mother who gives birth. It's Moses' sister who brings uh, Moses out of the river and back home to Moses' mother. It's even Pharaoh's daughter who rescues Moses. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, when Israel was a country in chaos, it was Hannah that God chose. Hannah was the one who was praying. Hannah was the one who gave over Samuel to say, Lord, I, I'm just going to give birth to somebody I'm going to give to you. And Samuel was the one who anoints David as king. All these are launching moments. If you know anything about the space program, the most critical moment in the mission is the launch. It takes the most amount of energy. It's the, the place they're most concerned. And it's like we need all of the best people on the front line for this moment. And when these moments come in God's history, he chooses. He chooses women. It's like these are the people who are best equipped to launch something brand new, something spectacular, because it's going to take a tremendous amount of energy. It's going to take a tremendous amount of wisdom. It's going to take a tremendous amount of perseverance to say, I can stick with it. And so God is is calling women. We see it all the way through the Old Testament. And then so when we arrive in the New Testament, we're not surprised when Gabriel shows up and who's he talking to? He's talking to a woman about another launch. The most critical mission 
moment we ever have in the whole human history. We're going to launch Jesus out into the world. And God comes looking for a woman. Now, two more mission-critical moments. The crucifixion of Jesus. Who were the ones that were faithful and stood around the cross while Jesus died? It was women. It was Mary, his own mother, and other women. And three days later at the resurrection, when Jesus is going to burst forth from the tomb, who, who gets the first good news? to then go tell the disciples to tell the world. Who gets that? It's a woman named Mary. She's the, launch, she's the launching of a, a rebirth. I, I need to give this to somebody who's got the, the stamina, who's got the, the strength to launch something out. And so God comes looking for, for another woman. These aren't just historical anomalies somehow just, oh, they just happen to all work together. No, this is the way God works through history. It's a pattern. God plays a familiar note as he's trying to launch a critical movement. And I want you to know he's, he's, still, he's still playing that same note today. And I want to thank many of the women here who have been part of of keeping this mission, the church, together, of launching things out, of being at a critical time, of, of staying in it even when it's difficult. God is still using women in mostly critical mission ways. Again, I think about that passage from uh, Luke 1. Mary saying, hey, here's your mission to deliver the Savior. What does she say? I'm, I am your servant. this mission critical moment I'm going to deliver I'm going to stay with it so women have played a prominent role in every stage of God's history finally the new birth and the role of shepherds we're all familiar with the words of Luke chapter 2 verse 7 Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him at the end Likely Mary and Joseph weren't stuck in a barn like we think. They were probably stuck in a cave. It's where they kept the animals. And inside that cave was probably a stone feeding trough. And in that stone feeding trough, they wrapped Jesus up and placed him in this manger. On this first Christmas night, the virgin womb gives birth to a firstborn son, Jesus Following the birth, there's an announcement by angels to shepherds. Let's look at that announcement. Chapter 2, verse 12. Matthew 2, verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. These shepherds, are. this is what they're going to see when they peer into this cave. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is well pleased and when the angels went away from him into heaven the shepherds said to one another let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger 
And when they saw it, they made known they made known the news that they had been told concerning the child. These shepherds peer into the cave. They see the linen cloth wrapped around a baby in a stone trough. And then they're going back out to not deliver advice to the world, but to deliver news to the world. Something has happened. Come and see for yourself. Luke chapter 23 and 24, Mary is still standing by Jesus at the cross. There's another Joseph there. Remember Joseph of Arimathea. And what did that Joseph do? He wrapped Jesus' body in a linen cloth. And he laid him in a virgin tomb. A tomb that had never been used before. On a platform that would have or might have looked like a, a feeding trough. In chapter 24, we have angels coming again, making an announcement, this to the women and then to the disciples. And then we, re- we read in chapter 24 where Jesus comes, where Peter hears the news, he, he co- near news, he comes to the empty tomb and he peers in, just like the shepherds. And what does he see? He sees this linen cloth laying there. So Jesus is not just the firstborn from Mary, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. What you're supposed to see at the end of Luke is another birth narrative. So the writer is saying, you see all these people, you see at the very beginning, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angels, you're going to see them at the end because we have a birth and now we have a second birth happening here. It's the firstborn of Mary and now it's the firstborn of the dead. It's the firstborn from the virgin womb to the firstborn of the virgin tomb. And we have shepherds coming and peering in and seeing the same thing in each side. And so Peter and the disciples are the new shepherds. Remember in John chapter 21, the last thing Jesus said to Peter. Remember that conversation? Peter, do you love me? Yes. Then what does Jesus say? Feed my sheep. Tell them the news. Deliver them the news over and over again about Jesus' rebirth. Isn't Spaghetti Junction beautiful? You may have read through these stories and never seen these connections before. But when you see Jesus, you know he's pulling all things together from past to present, from heaven and earth. He's bringing all things to himself. He's the intersection that every human heart seeks. And so we ask ourselves this morning, are we like the wise men who still seek him? Or do we just prefer to live autonomous lives? Women were used at critical mission moments. Women still are used at critical mission moments. Shepherds are in charge to announce good news. Shepherds today are in charge to announce good news. And then people who hear have a chance to respond. Is he the king of the Jews? That's my hope that think about today, the next few days. Is he really the king? 
And if he is, have I worshipped him? I've taken my treasure and I'm actually giving it to him and saying, I'm your servant. One last connection. The end of the birth narrative, angels and the heavenly host come and sing together. Remember that great picture? I'd love to have seen that one. Whole army of God singing about the birth of Christ. The very last verse in Luke is a new army. It's called the church. And you know what they're doing? The very last verse, they're singing praise about the rebirth of Jesus. So let's stand and sing our closing song today. 